Hey everybody, thanks for checking out the Glendale Road Church of Christ podcast. You're welcome to join us anytime you're around. We are at 1101 Glendale Road in Murray, Kentucky. We meet for worship every Sunday morning at 9 a.m., followed by our Bible study at 10 a.m., and we come back every Sunday evening for a bonus worship hour at 6 p.m. Also, every midweek on Wednesday at 7 p.m., we have a Bible study. You'd be welcome to join us. We'll be sure to save a seat for you. Now, here's this week's sermon. Scripture this morning comes from Revelations, chapter 16, 12 through 16. Then the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up, so that the way of the kings from the east might be prepared. And I saw three unclean spirits, like frogs, coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are spirits of demons, performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth and the whole world, to gather them to battle of the great day of God Almighty. Behold, I am coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. And they gathered them together to the place called in Hebrew Armageddon. You may be seated. Wanted to let you know that a few minutes ago we received a call from the son-in-law of Joe Farley and he was letting us know that she had passed away last night. So uh, obviously, he asked that I announce that Mark uh, Mayfield did. Uh, of course, everybody's doing okay right now. They're in the early stages of figuring out what to do, but most of us know Miss Joe, love her, and probably a little, little surprised at her passing, but we can rejoice with her that she's going to be with the Father in heaven. So let's take a moment and pray for this family, if you would. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the hope of eternal life that we have through Christ Jesus. We thank you so much also for the footprint that many people leave, not only in our lives, but in the lives of your kingdom. And we pray, Father, for our sister, Joe. We thank you for her, for her example, for her love of you, and pray for her family, Father, that you'll comfort them in her absence. We're grateful that she no longer has to suffer the aging and the health setbacks and all the things that plague humanity on earth, but that now she's fully healed, that she is with you in your glorious kingdom. And Father, we pray in the coming days that you'll be with her family to give them peace, to give them comfort. And we pray, Lord, that you'll be with us now as we continue in our service. But we thank you for Miss Jo. We thank you for all that she has done and meant to so many people here. And we thank you, Lord, for the hope we have through Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Last Sunday, I hopped on Facebook, and there was a video shared by several preacher friends of mine, and it was of brethren of ours in Ukraine worshiping God, and they were singing praises, and it was a room primarily full of young adults, women, and children, and this was their final worship service together before the women and children would be leaving to go to safer places, some of them to Poland, some to Romania, 
or other places. And I watched that video. I had no clue what they were singing, obviously, because it was in Ukraine or Ukrainian. But you could look around as the camera was panning around, and you could see the tear-filled eyes of those brothers and sisters of our, ours who were going to have to say goodbye to some of their loved ones, at least for a time. And I, I thought, you know, I've never had to worry about that. I've never once thought this could be my last Sunday worshiping with my brethren because I got to send my wife and my children to a safer place. We're blessed. God is good. And all the time. A lot of times when major things like this happen, uh, people, as I mentioned last Sunday, they want to look ahead to certain parts of the Bible and assign it to modern day issues. Of course, last week we looked at Matthew chapter 24 and all that Jesus had to say there about the destruction of Jerusalem, which has often been misinterpreted as the last days or the end of times or whatever you have it. Uh, Armageddon, however, is another one of those same issues that people put together and they say, well, there's the mention of a battle. And so this great battle that's going to be called Armageddon is going to usher in the end times, et cetera, so forth. But I think in order really to understand that, we have to understand the book of Revelation as a whole. So if you've got your Bibles, look at the first chapter of this with me. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I want to point out a few things. Most importantly, what I think we ought to look at is chapter 1, verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. And he sent and he signified it by his angel to his servant John. Signified is the, is the key word, all right? He's telling us here that this is not plain as day. It's, giving, it's given in symbols. Now, one of the illustrations I like to use with this passage is when you think back to World War II and World War I. The Germans were breaking the codes of the Western forces, and what did they do? We, the Americans, we employed in the First World War Choctaw code talkers, in the second, Navajo and other code talkers, because the Germans couldn't understand the Native American languages because it resembled nothing like what they had over there. So the Choctaws, the Navajo, and the various other tribes that were code talkers, they gave these codes. And, and what's real funny, I was watching a little bit about the Choctaw code talkers, and the word that they used for tank was turtle, because there's not a word for tank in Choctaw, but it was turtle. You know, the, the rolling turtle is what they called it. Uh, but they would have to make up words for different things so that they could communicate the code, and the Germans weren't able to break those codes like they had been the codes in English. So when I think about that this message is signified, the people in the first century understood what was being written, what was said. We can do our best to try to understand it, but here's the reality. We may not understand it like they understood it, but we can rest assured in the fact that they understood it. And maybe if we try to understand it how they did, then it'll make better sense. But often what happens is people go, well, let's look at the day's events and let's find a passage in here and go, oh, there it is. But that's not how the book works. We don't do the rest of the Bible that way, so why this book? Who knows? But you look at verse 3. It is 
as John says, it's a book of prophecy, the words of this prophecy. You look at verses 9 and 10 of chapter 1. I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ. Stop. Full stop. He is speaking in the present tense. I, John, your brother, in the tribulation and the kingdom. A lot of people think when God comes back, He's going to set up His kingdom on earth. Kingdom's already been established. When you read your New Testament, the kingdom is spoken of as present tense. And other passages equate the church of Christ with the kingdom of God. So anyway, you just tuck that in your back pocket. He was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. Verse 10, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet. History tells us that the island of Patmos was, you can see Patmos from the city of Ephesus. And John, if he was seated at a certain point on the Isle of Patmos, he could look across the water and he could see Ephesus. And tradition tells us that John was ministering at Ephesus and Mary, the mother of Jesus, had been with John up until her death. And because Christianity by the end of the first century, say into the second century, uh, even in the middle of the first century, was seen as kind of a political uprising against Rome, all because they refused to worship the idols of Rome, it was seen as a bit of a threat. And so they were going around picking up and picking off the leaders of Christianity. And John was one such leader. And so they exiled him to Patmos. And Patmos was known to be an island where political opponents were exiled. Now, when he says he was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, that may mean that he was worshiping God. Uh, the Lord's Day we know is Sunday. Him saying, I was in the Spirit, that may be another way of saying that he was worshiping. So you keep some of these facts in mind, but there are other things that you got to notice. Twice, he says, the time is near. Twice, he says, these things must shortly take place. And three times at the end of the book, he says, I am coming quickly. Doesn't sound like something that's going to make sense 2,000 plus years later. Now, I don't understand what you may understand quick, near, shortly means. But when I hear those words, here's something that drives me nuts. Uh, you call someone, you're supposed to meet someone. Hey, are you on your way? Yeah, I'm almost there. Now, almost there means you're right around the corner about to pull into the driveway, right? Some people's definition of almost there is, I just left the house, I've got 25 minutes before I get there. That's not almost. Y'all know those people, don't you? Right? Oh, I'm five minutes out. Their five minutes is 15 minutes. Now, when you say five minutes to me, I'm like, oh, five minutes, okay. I know how to read time. Some people don't. But you look at these phrases, the time is near, this must shortly take place, I'm coming quickly. That doesn't sound like something that's in the far off future, but rather something that's pretty immediate. Now, here's probably my biggest convincing point, at least to myself, I hope it is to you, that the majority, if not all of the things, I would say the majority of Revelation was something relevant to the first century that was fulfilled in their time. 
obviously, other than the judgment, the second coming, the coming of the new heavens and new earth and all that stuff. But I think the majority of everything else was fulfilled in that time. And here's why I believe that. There are three verses in the book of Daniel, which is also a book of prophecy. Daniel 8.26, seal up the vision, for it refers to many days in the future. Chapter 12, verse 4, but you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. And chapter 12, verse 9, go your way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed till the time of the end. Now, those of us who know history and who have studied history alongside the book of Daniel, we understand that the events and the prophecies that were given happened over the period of 400 years after the time of Daniel. Now, when you read about the end, that's not always talking about the end of the world. That's not how they would have understood that. The end may have been the end of a present set of circumstances. Uh, the end may have been, a, 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 in Daniel's case, he was in exile in Babylon. And what, what I found very fascinating, uh, excuse me while I get a little nerdy on you. Uh, you've heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls, most of us, some of us. Near Jerusalem, around the Dead Sea is this, uh, a whole bunch of caves. It's called the Qumran Community. And in the early 1900s, a Bedouin goat herder was herding his goats. Me, I fence them in, right, Marsha? We fence our goats in, but they still herd them over there. And one of his goats had gone into one of the caves, so he picks up a rock and he throws it in there to try and scare the goat back out. He's a herder. He's like, come on, we got to go. He throws another rock in and he hears something break. And so he goes in and there are these big jars, what we would probably call a vase with a top on it, and they have documents in it. And so archaeologists get wind of this and they go and investigate it and they find every book of the Old Testament, except for the book of Esther, copies of it in these Dead Sea Scrolls, as well as other documents. It was one of the greatest archaeological finds ever because these date to probably the first or second century B.C., the oldest copy of the Hebrew Scriptures we had dated to the 10th century A.D. So, you know, as about a thousand, thousand years or so. So, uh, anyway, there are more copies and commentaries on the book of Daniel alone that were found in the Dead Sea Scrolls than most anything else. And a lot of what you read about Daniel and even from Josephus and Philo is... In the days of the first century B.C., a lot of the priests were reading Daniel and they were understanding the prophecies being fulfilled. So again, you study the history of Daniel and how things played out from the time that he wrote the book until it came to pass, around 400 years. And so God tells Daniel, seal up the words of the book because it's not going to happen in your lifetime. And so because he told him that, we're like, well, okay. But look what he says to John. Do not seal the words of the prophecy of the book for the time is at hand. I mean, at least to me, that's a pretty convincing argument that the things that John saw and wrote would have been fulfilled in part or in large part in the days of those who received them. Okay, so back to chapter 16 of Revelation. What is Armageddon? 
Now, there are a lot of fanciful... Right, if you were to Google Armageddon, the first thing you're going to see is the movie. Because I did that, and I was like, such a horrible testimony upon our culture. They think first of the movie. And, you know, that's when the asteroid is headed towards the earth, and Bruce Willis and uh, what's-his-face, Aflac, Aflac, not the duck, but the actor... They have to get on the spaceship and go set the nuclear thing, the, the bomb on the asteroid to blow it, to keep it from hitting the earth and killing everybody. Armageddon's the name of the movie. Well, there are a lot of fanciful tales that have emerged from this. But when we look to the Bible, there's the pouring of the sixth bowl. And the great river Euphrates and its water was dried up. Now, Euphrates is not recorded as ever having dried up. Some have. Uh, but not the Euphrates. So probably what that was intended to mean uh, is that the kings from the east, at that time the Parthian Empire, they were going to travel westward. When you think about that, the Jews came from the west to the east and they crossed the Jordan. So that might have been a way that they would have understood that. So it's illustrating the dreadfulness of the time of God's wrath. And so the stage is set so that a person might think that imperial propaganda leads to the moment of the battle. When you look at verses 12 through 14, specifically, of course, the water dried up so the way of the kings from the east might be prepared. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them together to the battle of the great day of God Almighty. Now remember, this book is signified. This isn't to be understood literally. Now we can try and make a little bit of sense of it, but we may not fully get the whole thrust of it. But there may have been some sort of propaganda uh, either from the Roman Empire, from the Jews, something uh, that, that, was, that was distorting how folks were seeing things. But anyway, Jesus speaks up, and the one who is watchful and keeps his garments prepared for the moment, the words of Christ here in verse 15, blesses he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. Uh, it, it almost sounds like the Jewish tradition of keeping watch at the temple. So at the temple, there were folks who kept watch, and when a guard was caught sleeping, he was beaten the first time. Talk about an incentive not to fall asleep on the job, right? But the second time, his clothes were burned, and he had to, de he had to depart naked in shame. So even more of an incentive to not fall asleep at work. But when you look at that last verse, the place where these forces are gathered together is in Hebrew called Armageddon. In Hebrew, Ar, Har, it's pronounced, means hill. Megiddo is the valley of Megiddo. Here it is. There's Armageddon. Not as impressive as what you've probably seen in movies or heard, right? As a matter of fact, Megiddo is not actually a hill, but it's, it's kind of a, it's, a, it's the plain. When you look to the just beyond this hill, that plain, that's Megiddo. And, and this was a place where a lot of uh, uh, travel happened. You would have folks come uh, from, from one part of the, the, the world to the other. Uh, 
For example, this had routes that linked Egypt with the Fertile Crescent, as well as Palestine with the Phoenician coast. Now, Megiddo is a part of the spur of Mount Carmel, where Elijah faced off with the prophets of Baal. Y'all remember that? I love that story. Mainly, I love that story because there is a biblical example for being sarcastic, which I love. So Elijah's up on Mount Carmel, and you've got the prophets of Baal, and he said, okay, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna make an altar, and we're going to pour water, dig a pit around it, pour water in it, and it'll be that whatever God answers by fire, that'll be the true and living God. And so Elijah says, y'all go first. So they're over there doing their things. They're dancing. They're even cutting on themselves, trying to evoke a response, elicit a response from Baal. And Elijah, here's the sarcastic part. Elijah says, maybe he's gone on a journey. Maybe he's fallen asleep. I'm like, man, I love a good trash talker, especially when it's a prophet of God. That's a good biblical precedent for sarcasm. So if you ever want to get on to me for my sarcasm, I'm going to say, you need to read about Elijah and Mount Carmel. I can tell not many are convinced by that line of reasoning. Anyway, Megiddo was also a place where Deborah and Barak killed Sisera, and it was also where King Josiah was slain by Pharaoh Necho. It's Basically, this area is known as a renowned area of conflict, but there's really no literal hill of Megiddo. It's a, it's a plain. But what's also believed is that in verse 14, there's the mention of gathering them to the battle of the great day of God Almighty. And so this was known as a, a place where battles were fought. So you notice a few of the elements here with the, uh, well mentioned in, in what, verse 13 and, and uh, verse 14, the dragon, uh, which may likely be Satan, the beast, which may have been the civil authorities, unclean spirits and false prophets and demons. Essentially, there are going to be forces that lead earthly powers astray. So it seems to me that the concept of what's occurring here is more spiritual than physical. It's more symbolic than it is literal. Armageddon, I don't believe, is a battle on earth that takes place, but in this context was God waging a battle against the forces of evil in that first century, those that were persecuting His church, His people. And the thing is, if we try and make this make sense to us in our time, we're robbing the first century audience of the comfort and hope it would have brought them. This is why I think it's bad to read the Bible as if it was written to me. It wasn't written to me, but it was written for me. It was written to these people in their circumstances, in their time. And based on how God dealt with that and with them, I can take comfort and hope from that. Suffice it to say, the, the point is, you know, whenever things are going horribly bad, God's working out something somewhere we can't see. Ephesians 6, verse 12, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, 
but against powers and principalities and the powers of darkness in the heavenly places. A lot of times all that we see is what takes place on earth. But beyond what the naked eye can see, there is a battle that's being fought and God will win. Let me read to you this quote from a fellow by the name of Lou Nichols. Every believer sooner or later will discover that the Christian life is a battleground, not a playground. And that he faces an enemy who is much stronger than we are apart from the Lord. We need the power of God to stand against Satan because he is the enemy of God. Our battle is not against human beings, but against spiritual powers. Here's my favorite part. Listen to this. However, as believers, we do not fight for victory. We fight from victory. I love that. What a, what a wonderful perspective. We're not fighting for victory. We are fighting from victory. Why? Because Jesus has already won. Jesus has already won. One of my buddies that I've known since middle school, who's also a preacher in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, uh, called me Tuesday. He texted me first. He's like, hey, do you have a second to talk? I'm like, sure. So I called him, and Anthony was his name. And, uh, man, we go back since middle school, and he's just one of the greatest guys ever. I wish I was as good a Christian as he was. Just a great guy. He called me. He said, he said Steve, he said, I'm, I'm going on, I don't know if it was a radio show or a podcast. He said, and they're asking about Ukraine and Russia and the end times and Armageddon. He said, you and I have the same views about Revelation. He said, but how can I simply say what we believe? And so we talked a long time. And, uh, you know, we, we talked, you know, a little deep technical things and this, that, and the other. I said, Anthony, I said, he, he, let me put it simple. And this is the way most of us can understand this. Some of you, you go, I, I got no idea. And that's okay. You can make a post on Facebook and you're going to have five different people interpret it five different ways. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Anybody? You say something and someone will say, so what you're saying is, and then they'll go on and you're like, and you're thinking, that's not what I, that's not what I said. And then someone will go, so what you're saying is you don't like, or, you know, and they want to make an argument. And I'm just sitting there going, man, it's a joke. I was making a joke. But y'all got to get all serious, right? I'm like, oh, get a sense of humor and a life, please. Not everything is serious, but you see that? And I said, so you can make a post on Facebook and you have five different people understand it five different ways. Some are going to agree with you. Some are going to debate with you. Some are going to call you a horrible person. If we cannot understand a small sentence or two on social media, how do we expect everybody to get one book of the Bible right, let alone the entire thing? So I said, I said, you know, you don't have to debate the technical points of it, but you can just make that point and go, you know, here's what I know. Now, we can all look at things and we can go, well, now, what about this? What about that? And we could do all the debating and arguing and everything. Here's what I know. Jesus said, in the world, you will have trouble. Fear not, I have overcome the world. I know that. 
I have overcome the world, Jesus says. That's all I need to know. Yeah, but what about, what about, hey, faith is the victory that overcomes the world. That's all I need to know. So how in the midst of these circumstances that are happening on the world, do you go forward and do you, I said, look, I said, Anthony, there's a phrase that I often say to myself. Maybe it's a prayer that I pray to myself. Not original to me, but they're the words of Abraham. The Lord himself will provide. So you're not worried about this stuff? I said, look, I said, I got more skin in the game than most. I've got a daughter in Eastern Europe, okay? So if Putin gets nuts with his nuclear warheads, I'm going to be worried. But Jesus has said, I've overcome the world. That's good enough for me. And I believe like Abraham, the Lord will provide. I don't know how. I can't tell you when. But I know all the things I don't know. And I could focus on all the things I don't know. But I'd rather focus on who I know. And I know God, and I know Jesus, and he says he's overcome the world, and God has always provided. That's all I need to know. That's all I need to know. That is faith. That's faith. I don't have to see it. God, I don't have to know your plan, but I know you well enough to know that it's going to be okay. I love that song, Every Little Thing is Going to Be All Right. Y'all know that song? That's the only part of that song I know. I couldn't tell you what the rest of it says, but that part stuck. Every little thing's going to be all right, all right. I do feel so horribly bad for those that are suffering, though on the other side of the world. I feel horrible for them. I pray for them every day. And I know it's easy for me to sit over here in the comfort and the security of this great nation and this state and this church building and say this, but I pray that if trouble ever lands at my doorstep that I still have that faith. Because I've seen evidence of our brethren over in that nation who have that faith. And I go, look at how blessed we are. They go to church underground because of the issues that are happening. And sometimes I can't even get our own folks to come to church here. I love you, but let me say, shame on you. You want to talk about the land of the free and the brave? Think of all the blessings we got. We get to come here free, without fear. Think of what they're dealing with. But every little thing's going to be all right. Whether here on the earth, or we get, you know, this, if this doesn't make heaven seem a little sweeter to you, I don't know what will. I really don't. There are literally, quite literally, sometimes that I'm like, hey, if, Lord, if you don't want to come quickly, will you at least bring me? This is such a mess. Such a mess. But it'll be all right. <laughs>
Pray with me. Gracious Father, help us to be compassionate towards those who are suffering. Help us to be grateful for the blessings, spiritual and temporal, that we have. Help us to be faithful in all circumstances. We know, Father, the whole world is in your hands as we've sung that song since we were children. And we pray, Father, that you will exercise your sovereignty in these horrible circumstances. And we pray, Father, to have hope in you as we study your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to stand and sing a song of encouragement. And anyone who, for any spiritual reason, feels the need to respond to the Lord, you can do that. We'll have an elder here, an elder there. I'll be down here as well. If you're a Christian and you want the prayers of this church for forgiveness of sins, we'll pray with you and for you. If you're someone who has faith but you've never acted on your faith to confess Jesus as your Lord, to be buried in baptism, we'll assist you with that too. This is a judgment-free zone right down here, okay? Judgment-free. All you got to do is come. So do that while we stand and sing. What can-